Hello and welcome to Coffee Meet with Algamy Consulting and I'm your host Chris New. Today's podcast is the fifth in our series of podcasts titled Optimism with Caution. As always, we aim to provide insight from key players of the wealth and asset management industry on what it means to run and operate an investment management business as the industry looks forward to refocusing on a post-COVID world while also adapting to a post-Brexit digital era. Today's topic is operational resilience. Operational resilience is making the headlines in the wealth and asset management industry with a strong push from regulators across Europe and particularly in the UK. Against that background, how are the operating models adapting in the industry after having been tested to the limit during the COVID crisis? What is the implication for outsourcing, which is a prevalent model in the industry? How will these operational models stand the test of time in an industry that is continuously undergoing change? And finally, is operational resilience the preserve of CROs and CROs only, or should it be seen as a cross-discipline responsibility? Today, uh, we're very lucky uh, to be joined by two global leaders in the WAM industry. Firstly, we have Edith Majerik, live from Luxembourg and CEO of Victor Buck Services. We also have Mike Tumulti, global COO of Standard Life Aberdeen. Um, good morning, Mike. Hopefully you got your coffee with you as to help you along with this chat. Before we get into this podcast, I thought perhaps you could give yourself an introduction about how you got to your roles as CEO or COO, what you're passionate about in the industry, and maybe a little bit about your business. Edith, maybe you can kick off. How did you get to this global leadership role? Well, as I used to say, I've been spending 23 years in the financial industry before joining Victor Buck. I had been lucky enough to be one of the first clients of Victor Buck Services almost 20 years ago. And after 15 years of probation period, the two founders of the company asked me if I could join because they were heading off to other directions and other challenges. So that's how I joined Victor Buck Services nine years. So when you speak about fintech, I moved really from the financial world to the tech and to the industry because Victor Buck Services is not only developing uh, soft solutions, but also providing physical services to deliver data across the globe for the financial industry, utility industry, health industry. So Victor Buck Services is really having a core business in supporting the asset management industry in delivering contract notes, documents, statements, confirmation, and anything you can think of through a multi-channel disposal, whether it's physical, because we are partnering both here in Luxembourg, but also in Singapore, we have a branch, in Sydney, in Hong Kong, in the UK as well. And on the other front, we are also developing additional activities, among which printed electronics. So we are entering into the IoT world. We'll be printing antennas and tags. And apart from that, the interest of both the companies and myself is really to engage into a national level that feeds into the European level on subjects like cybersecurity, data protection, ESG, renewable energies, etc. So that's bridging that world from taking documents into the 21st century and dealing with the cyber issues. Thank you. Mike, we've got the post-merger Standard Life Aberdeen. What does that look like in terms of a global presence and employees? And 27 years with Standard Life Aberdeen. Effectively joined as graduate trainee after graduating in, in 1994. And as I say, 27 years this year. I've spent a large proportion of my career in operations, change and, and technology. And ultimately was appointed as Global Chief Operating Officer for Standard Life Aberdeen back in March 19. So that gave me literally about 12 months to prepare for the global pandemic, which ultimately I don't think anybody was really prepared for. 
So our, our business, effectively, Global Asset Manager, post-merger, will conclude our front office integration in the next six weeks, which is pretty exciting. And then ultimately move into more of an optimization phase, which means that there's work to do. But actually, from a front office perspective, we will have effectively got the holy grail of single portfolio management system, single enterprise data hub. And then ultimately, we'll start working on consolidating a middle office service provision. And we have a clearly a, a pretty significant UK platform business, which is incredibly important for savers and investors in the UK, really essential to allow people to help save. And that aligns to, to my passion. I think as I've, I've got older is the application of good design thinking to try and create some semblance of order out, out of a bit of chaos. And I think when you think about the merger brought together really three asset managers, the old Scottish Widows Investment Business, Standard Life Investments, and Aberdeen Asset Management. And there really was three infrastructures that effectively needed to be brought together into a single space. Actually, really in the interest of clients and ultimately making sure that the service and the investment performance that ultimately we deliver drives genuine benefit and value for our clients at the end of the day. So I'm really passionate about customer service and doing the right thing for clients. I fully agree with that sentiment. And it's something we, particularly in the UK, the financial services industry needs to keep pushing that it's about the client so thank you for that introduction if you're familiar with the podcast i ask uh, a little bit of a fun teaser a question to keep you on your toes operational resilience often when we're building up resilience we don't realize we're doing it and it's often seen as a failure or a hindrance at the time so i've decided for today's teaser it's going to be about what in your daily life have you often seen as a, a chore or a hindrance but actually, in hindsight, you've realized that's helped you become a better personal. Moving into the podcast, I think we're going to set the scene for our listeners because operational resilience is quite an abstract concept for those who aren't involved in it day to day. We all heard about financial resilience post-financial crisis, where the regulators focused on balance sheets, liquidity, risk-weighted assets. And in my prior days as an investment banker, it was all about what was a core tier one ratio. But more re recently, although operational resilience has turned up, what does this mean? Is this the same as operational risk? And question to you, Mike, as a global COO who's responsible for this, especially in the eyes of the UK regulator, what does operational resilience mean? And has it become more important than financial risk? Oh, great question. I don't think it's become more important. I think it's become equally as important as financial resilience. And I absolutely agree with you that post the financial crisis, there was an awful lot of chat about financial risk and other, whether ultimately organizations had the right level of solvency or the right level of liquidity, depending on the nature of the organization. But I do think operational resilience has become equally as important. And I think that's been brought about by you know, a couple of things that I could relate to in the UK. We obviously had issues with TSB and we obviously had issues with NatWest. And in both those situations, it became almost impossible for customers to get access to their funds in a timely manner. And therefore, I think the regulator has moved on from what if an organization were to become financially bankrupt, but ultimately, how do you ensure that all component parts of your organization are adequately robust? And particularly in a world where, as we've seen in recent weeks, ransomware attacks, cybercrime is through the roof. And that's unfortunately been one of the sad things that we've seen during the pandemic is the number of cybercrime actually increasing during that time is concerning. So I think operational resilience has become as important as financial resilience, but you do need to look at it holistically and think about business continuity. You need to look at cyber and you also need to look at really importantly, the operation of your business critical process. And the other thing clearly that operational resilience has at its heart is people. 
And that was definitely one of the areas during the pandemic that we've all been living through. Concerns about people and ultimately where we're going to be in a situation where more, heaven forbid, people were going to be significantly ill or, or die as a consequence of the pandemic. And would that put at risk operations? And indeed, we saw a little bit of that in relation to India in recent weeks. So it's holistic for me. It has become as important. And clearly, it's a huge amount of time that I spend focused on it as part of my overarching portfolio within Standard Life Aberdeen. Just in terms of those areas that it's brought together, is it more than just operational risk? You mentioned cybersecurity. Is, are those the key strands or is there anything else you see as critical? Effectively, it's brought together your third-party supplier management arrangements and ultimately being really clear about do you have good look-through into your suppliers in terms of their operational resilience? So it's brought in cybersecurity, it's brought in business continuity plans, it's brought in people, as I say, from an HR perspective. We have mobilised in relation to the FCA effectively go live with operational resilience at some point in, in 2022, brought together a programme of work which spans the whole organization across each of the different functions because it literally touches everybody and everything that that you do even physical buildings are all a component part of resilience for the organization thank you that's a good clarity there that's a nice segue to edith and in terms of third player supply management obviously you are key component of that value chain through to the customer when you talked about the financial information and statements that victor buck services provides how do you responding to the concerns Mike will have about ensuring that robustness of that supply chain. How do you get people like Mike comfy? How can he sleep at night? And particularly in the context of your business and these key things to some of the services you provide and being a third-party outsourcer, how do you provide that reassurance, especially on the basis that the FCA as a regulator says, it's not just about reassuring it won't happen. It's assuming that disruption will happen. You can't prevent things like COVID happening. So basically, I think there are different angles and different answers to your questions, if I may. The first one is that you need to be close to your clients. So yes, it's about third-party surveillance, but it's about a partnership as well and being transparent. I think the transparency is very important. Whether it's in the COVID situation or another situation, whether you encompass a cybersecurity event, you need to be transparent. You need to be close to your clients. You need to be able to answer the questions, the concerns, and be there for them 24 hours 7. The part of, um, in regards to the COVID situation as well, obviously there was some rules that have been imposed onto everybody is remote work. Well, that's very nice in an IT environment, but when you have physical print environment and you need to distribute physically, obviously you cannot send the people back home. So we had to organize ourselves and make sure that we had different shifts, making sure that if people, and referring to Mike was saying people is a very important element to that, having the right level of support and people on site to be able to produce those physical statements, put them to the post to be distributed. Likewise, on the IT side and development side and the digital space, we used to have a non-remote working policy. Why? Because there are regulations around that as well, because Luxembourg being a very special position, we have people crossing the border from France, Germany, and Belgium on a daily basis. So you need to be very mindful as well on the security that you have in place when you have people working remotely. So in a very, very period of time, we had to implement that. The fourth thing is that, as Mike was saying, people, having people working remotely 
means that you need to be closer to them. It may seem strange because obviously you don't have the physical proximity, but the management perspective and the management role is getting even more important because you need to be close to the people to understand what they're doing, to make sure that you follow your activities. Let's talk about due diligence. So all of our clients are entitled to do a due diligence on Victorbuck services. This is one thing. Second thing, obviously, is that we are uh, overseen by the Luxembourg regulator, the CF. And in that perspective, we have the same obligations and duties than anyone in the financial sector. So supervised by the CSSF external and internal audit certification as well. So we are PSF. But all of that, as I always say, is nice to have certifications, but you need to live the readiness of a BCP, etc. If it's just certification, it's a tick in the box. If it's just because you want to follow the regulation, we need to bear in mind that the most important item is to the protection of our clients. So in that perspective, obviously, it's making sure that your resilience is there. And it's also a cultural mindset change. Resiliency is not, as you were asking at the beginning of the discussion, CRO responsibility or CO responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. As soon as you enter the building, physically or logically, as soon as you turn on your PC at home and you access the infrastructure and the environment, that's everybody's responsibility to make sure that they are aware of what could happen, what could go wrong, what are the implications. So you're speaking about uh, phishing, you're speaking about uh, cybersecurity events, you're speaking about data protection. So it's really a mindset and making sure that you bring any person at any level of the organization up to speed and having awareness sessions to make sure they understand what it means in terms of resiliency to protect our client's business. The one question I would like to ask you as well as a business, do you see from a sales point of view, if you're going to pitch to someone like Mike, it's an industry which is under pressure because because of fee pressure. So often a lot of the, the discussion may be around product and cost, but is operational resilience a differentiator if you can demonstrate that? I will be a bit controversial in that aspect. There are more and more regulations that you need to adhere to. If you want to be really a top service provider, just applying and following regulation rules is not enough. You need to be there for your clients. I wish it would be seen when there are RFPs that are done as a differentiator. Unfortunately, as you said, the cost and the fee pressure is really high as well. And I think that if we would have more people around the table, like Mike, having to deal with those aspects at the client's side, that would be very helpful because as far as I'm concerned, it's a big differentiator. If your infrastructure is going down, it's very important that you are ready to answer to your client needs, even if in a downgraded mode, if need be, but it's important. So not everybody on the corner of the street could continue to provide that type of service. That should be factored into. But I think Mike will confirm that as it happens in the asset management industry as well, you have to follow more and more regulations but it's very, very hard to pass on those fees to your shareholders. And management companies and the asset managers, it's very hard to make them understand that such level of security has a cost, has a price, and it needs to be embedded in the fees that are then incorporated into the fund. Do you think post-COVID that people have understood the value, the premium that you would want to pay for operational resilience? Because in March or April last year, you could have paid any price to keep 
that value chain in one piece. I think Edith is spot on, right? Back to your intro, Chris. Effectively, I think the criteria to select any service provider now, financial stability, operational resilience, ESG credentials, what do they stand for as a corporate? And then ultimately, you then get on to capabilities, relationship and price. And I don't think pre-COVID and almost what's happened with the increase in cybercrime and, and issues that have become far more prevalent over the last two, three, four, five years. I'm not sure if we've been having this conversation 10 years ago, that would have been the list. It would have been financial stability. It would have been capabilities. It would have been relationships and it would have been price. And I think ultimately, to Edith's point, operational resilience is now much closer to the top of the list. And I think ESG, because ultimately you do not necessarily want to partner with organizations that don't have good ESG credentials, because reputationally, that is not a good place to be. And also you touched on outsourcing, and clearly we've got Edith as a service provider. And and the asset management industry has over the last five years plus, so margins be squeezed and ultimately it's harder to maintain a level of profit. So effectively, there's therefore a lot of cost pressure on the chief operating officer and the chief financial officer to effectively come up with ways in which you can try and protect your margins when ultimately what clients are willing to pay is less than it was before due to competitive tension. And that then results in you effectively changing your operating model and looking more to service providers like Victor Book and the big global custodians or, or utility companies, technology companies, effectively to work in partnership with us as asset managers to re-engineer our operating model to effectively try and operate in a more optimal and more cost-efficient way. But the criteria that I would bring into play immediately in terms of the selection of a third-party service provider would be their operational resilience and the transparency that they would be willing to afford me with in order to allow me to fulfill my obligations as a senior manager under the senior management certification regime, where I take my responsibilities really seriously. And if I've got third-party service providers as part of my operating ecosystem, then the obligation is on me to effectively make sure I can look and I can see what's going on. And then ultimately, one of the criteria that we would be looking at selecting service provider would be the extent to that they continually reinvest in their own operational resilience to, to drive up that level. And I'm not naive to know that that does not come for, for free. But I do think it, it leads me to a place where I potentially outsource more because I can then work with other clients of the third party so my competitors effectively working collaboratively with my competitors with the third party service providers to make sure that we're all sharing the value of the investments that's been made in things like operational resilience that's so almost creating a uh, cost disciplinary culture yeah. outside the firm but working as if you're you're inside which is the, the outsourcing holy grail edith touched on culture how do you get that culture change in standard life aberdeen to make yes. sure that they, they understand your message because you're responsible, you're focused on it. How do you get them on board? Again, and I do think, as Edith said, it is a bit of a contradiction in terms of getting closer to the people, even though they're working remotely, because ultimately there is a massive onus on giving the people principles and guidelines that ultimately need to be adopted as far as remote working is concerned. So physical printing is a no-no. 
actually, I think the amount of printing that's been done during the pandemic has diminished pretty significantly within our organization, looking at the utilization of data and how you transport data in a more appropriate way. We have cybersecurity weeks, ultimately, where effectively it's about raising awareness. So I was on a call like this with our chief exec, with my head of cybersecurity. So we have individual training modules, ultimately, that people do with competence tests at the end to make sure that effectively the pass rate is 80% plus in terms of the questions that are being asked. And it's really about, as, as Edith said, and I think she encapsulated it really well, it's everybody's responsibility within the organization effectively to help make the operation of the whole firm more resilient. We've had to communicate an awful lot more to remind people when they're working remotely that some of the disciplines that would have been in place in the office around password security, physical Mm. printing, telephone calls being recorded, all of those disciplines we've had to reinforce to people that we can't have a reduction in resilience as a consequence of remote working. And to be fair, colleagues have responded tremendously well, but it is just this ongoing. And then obviously hybrid working will bring with it more issues because we're going to be part in the office, part working remotely. You've gone from all in to all out to to a halfway house, and that will again bring with it another set of consequences and implications that we'll need to contend with. Edith, going back to you, I just wanted to talk about as a global organisation, you mentioned you, the presence in Singapore was large and obviously you're in Sydney and elsewhere. Are there regional variations? Are the regulations in Singapore talking about operational resilience or is it just UK and, and Europe? It, it's a general concern and you need to respond to uh, your client needs and our clients being based in those different jurisdictions. Obviously, when we answer due diligence questionnaires and due diligence on-site visits, well, on off-site because of the COVID situation, obviously, you need to be able to cover those aspects as well. And Singapore regulator is very strict on the resiliency and how you can continue supporting your client, for example. So it's not only to focus on where we stand, and obviously our jurisdiction is Luxembourg, but we need to make sure that we cater for the needs and the requirements and the questions of all our clients, wherever they sit. And Mm. we have a lot of Anglo-Saxon clients as well. We have a lot of clients whereby their security teams are based in the U.S., for example. So you can appreciate that their questions may be slightly or completely different than what we could encounter here in Luxembourg, for example. And that's also one of the reasons why we continue working as well on what's happening at the European level. There's a new directive that is coming out that is called NIS2 on um, cybersecurity and protection and all the measures that we need to be uh, in place. And that's typically the type of aspect and theme that we are covering and discussing as well to make sure that Anything that would be covering our clients, we are preempting what the needs would be and the new requirements would be. Excellent. It's good to hear. It's a global response. I think just to round off this discussion, can people leverage existing regulation? We've talked about a pathway to where we are now. What is it that we can leverage? And is this just about getting better at what we already do? I do think the FCA's approach to operational resilience is about getting better in respect to what we already do. I think the identification of important business services is something that we have looked at for a long time. We called them sort of business impact analysis, BIAs, as they were effectively called. And those BIAs ultimately drove our response in in the pandemic, which is what is our 
response to this, we need to make sure our systems are functioning. We need to know that ultimately how many people we need. The difference between the pandemic and sort of any other disaster recovery type scenario is we didn't realize we were all going to have to be locked up during the respective lockdowns on a global basis. And therefore, ultimately, your traditional DR site that you would have gone to ultimately wasn't in play. So effectively, we've updated, obviously, on the back of the pandemic, a lot of our important business services. The regulations and the identification of those important business services are pretty critical, but they always have been for us. It is a question of leveraging that regulation to effectively continue to to have a really high bar for organizations who haven't as much time on this. I suspect they they have done over over the last 18 months than, than ever before, but the regulations don't frighten me. I think what the regulations do, as I say, is in that there is consistency. And just back to the global point, what I would say is we, we effectively establish global frameworks that encapsulate regional differences. We will ultimately try and make sure that we've got consistency on a global basis that's got resilience built in that will allow us to satisfy the MES in Singapore or the CSSF in, in Luxembourg, the FCA in the UK or the Fed or whoever it might be in the US, for example. So, so ultimately, global framework should really allow good, consistent resilience with regional variations built in as and when necessary and required. Excellent. So I think that's uh, good news for anyone who's listening, an opportunity to further enhance that, those global frameworks. Just to summarise, there's three key points. We just talked about leveraging existing resilience that was built up over the financial crisis. I think that's um, incredibly more important message to take away. As he talked about culture, it's for everyone and it's about training and consistently communicating to your team and not just having this as a one-off communication or event. And again, Edith mentioned it in her first discussion, and Mike, you highlighted it as one of your key points of a relationship with an outsource provider is transparency, collaboration, and as part of that, investing in your business. So those, for me, are the, the three big takeaways among the many points that you two have both brought up. So very quickly, before I let you go, have you thought about your teaser and uh, your daily grind that has uh, built up your operational resilience. So I'm going to go to you first, Mike. I'm not quite sure why I started running marathons in 2017, but I did. And I've done eight marathons. My last marathon was January 2020, but my resilience definitely benefits from exercising, from running. And there certainly was nothing better during the course of 2020 and the first half of this year to get outside, to be able to run on your own, safe social distance, fresh air, and really to put the world to rights in your head. And there's nothing better than coming back from having done 10 miles, 16K, or however long it is, ultimately, and thinking, okay, I'm clear about what I'm going to do now. And, and there's nobody to argue with you apart from yourself. That definitely has been my go-to thing since the beginning of 17. And it was definitely my go-to thing during the pandemic. And when you've run a marathon and you've run 20, 26 miles and you've got your medal is just amazing feeling so that's what my go-to thing is excellent edith what about you what is your resilience lesson or example you want to bring with not only the covid but obviously as because it was public we went through a severe sabotage last year one thing that's confirmed is that you need to be able to park aside your emotions you need to be able to work with a team because the crisis management team and the way that team is set up is very important. So train and make sure that you continue sharing and discussing with those people, making sure that, as I said, you are transparent and you openly discuss with your clients as well. 
reflect on what's happening and step back. And the stepping back is really making sure that you have some thinking time. Very often when you have a crisis, whether COVID or something else, the majority of the people forget that they need to have some reflection time and they make sometimes emotional decisions. I think reflecting, whether you practice through yoga or self-reflection, you name it as you want, but this is very important. You need to take some thinking time. A bit like Mike said, you are just alone with yourself and you empty your mind and then you reflect positively and with new ideas on what's happening. And this is the only way to go forward. That's it. Self-reflection. I think yoga, Pilates, I'm a big fan of. Thank you for that, Edith. And thank you both. It's been a wonderful podcast and taking time out today to decode operational resilience uh, and what it means for the WAM industry. So thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you too. To our listeners, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation on what was, I hope you'll agree, an enlightening conversation on operational resilience from two leaders in the WAM industry. We look forward to grabbing another cup of coffee with Algamy Consulting with you all in next in our series of podcasts on the theme of optimism with caution in the wealth and asset management industry. If you want to discuss this podcast further with us, or if you have any questions or would even like to take part in the next in our series of Optimism with Caution, please get in touch with us through inquiries at algamy-consulting.com or via LinkedIn, Algamy Consulting. Thank you and goodbye.